Hello and welcome to Nightlight. We're still delving through the issue of justice and righteousness. And the more we study, the larger the subject gets. I don't think any of us are tired of it. I think on the contrary, we're probably being awakened to the many layers of issues that have to be addressed when you take on this subject. And as we've pointed out from Jeremiah chapter 9, this is what God delights in. He delights in loving kindness and justice and, and righteousness, which in, in, involves mercy, restoration, healing. This is the heart of God. He has shown us what is good and what he requires of us to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Jesus just carries this on in his statement to us in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, especially in Luke's version, where he says, be kind to everyone because even your father, your father in heaven is kind even to the wicked and the, and the, the cruel. We've got to learn these things in, in deeper ways than just theological or, or doctrinal awareness. We have to learn how to walk this out. It would be true in any generation of believers that we have to obey and are invited to obey these things. It's not that we have to. We're invited into the greatest kind of life there is. But in what we're facing now in this present era, uh, the, the, the light is getting brighter, the dark is getting darker, and the middle gray area is disappearing. That means that we who claim to know the Lord and belong to him are going to have to walk like he walked. And Peter tells us how he was. There was no guile found in his mouth who when he was injured did not seek revenge but waited for God to manifest full, complete justice. And that means we've got to be set free of any idea of full, complete justice being revenge. Now, the Bible does say God takes vengeance on evil. He will take vengeance on evil. But there's a subtle danger of us, and I know this well because I've wrestled with it my entire life. I think I'm beginning to come to the end of the wrestling match with it, but I don't pretend that I'm completely free of it. That is the wrestling match that that causes us to Say we want justice when what we really mean is we want vengeance. I think the reason the Bible says vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, is because he is the only one who can exact just retribution without it being vengeful. Uh, I don't know how how else could you reconcile the scriptures like Ezekiel 
where God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I only take pleasure when they repent. Now, we can turn to verses like Psalm 2. Why do the wicked rage and the heathen imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. But he that dwells in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will have his enemies in derision. Those are true statements, but they have to be coupled with other statements that we just quoted from Ezekiel, for instance, that God doesn't take ultimate pleasure in the death of the wicked. Wicked men die because of their wickedness, not because God wants them to die. He he doesn't want them to die. He would rather they repent. And if we're going to be like him, then our goal and our focus and our heart has got to be one that desires the ultimate healing and cleansing and restoration of people, no matter how terrible their crimes. Now, this starts wading into deep water, and obviously I'm I'm not going to satisfy our struggle in a few minutes uh, in a nightlight. But I want us to begin, I hope we all want to begin to wade in on our own and go as deep as we are able because we're going to have to. It's going to have to go beyond academic observation of concepts and work itself into the way we treat our enemies because all through Scripture, Justice is not just balancing the books. In fact, a thorough study of Scripture, as we've already previously looked at in several occasions, doesn't have much to do with balancing the books. It has more to do, biblical justice, mishpat, has to do not with balancing the books, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the whole purpose of the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, the lex talianus, the, the law that uh, so many misquote because they don't understand it, it was not meant to get somebody else's tooth because your tooth got knocked out, and that somehow balances things. How does that balance anything? The, the, the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth should be more properly translated and understood no more than an eye for an eye. No more than a tooth for a tooth. It was not meant to balance the equation, as I just said. Taking your tooth because you knocked out my tooth just makes both of us toothless. It doesn't, doesn't balance anything. But at least keeping me from taking all your teeth because you knocked out one tooth uh, keeps the toothlessness from getting totally out of hand. All the ancient uh, pagan cultures, uh, you, you know, you you steal you steal my cow, I kill your children. That 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 was the mindset there, and that shows up in our hearts, doesn't it? If you'll be honest, 
under certain circumstances, that will show up in you and in a, a, and in me. I better talk more about me than about you. I'm, I just know that in my own heart, uh, there's this rage that wants to rise up sometimes against what I perceive as evil, and it is evil usually. But uh, I, will, I find myself wanting to bring retribution in a way that is un, unholy, ungodly. That's usually because, I think it's always because, there's sin in us we haven't been honest about and haven't dealt with. That's illustrated really in a kind of a painfully poignant and clear way. When Nathan the prophet comes before David, and uh, Nathan says to David, after he has sinned with Bathsheba and murdered uh, Bathsheba's husband, arranged for his murder, which is the same thing. And Nathan says to David, who thinks it's all covered up, David, there's a man in your kingdom who has uh, suffered injustice by his neighbor. And David said, what is this What is this injustice? And Nathan says, uh, the man only had a little lamb. That's all he had. He loved it, cherished it. His neighbor had uh, company coming, and rather than kill one of his own fatted calves, he went over and took his neighbor's one single lamb and killed it. What should be done with the man? And David responded, he should be killed. But the law of Moses did not require that someone be killed for stealing an animal. It required that the animal be restored fourfold, which again would not, in this case, do justice, but it would be uh, a mitigated justice because uh, there's not equality of justice by killing a man for stealing a sheep, even a beloved sheep. But the point is, Nathan points his finger in David's face and says, you are the man. And I believe that David's rashness and his quickness of wanting to call down ultimate uh, extreme punishment on this man was because of David's own undealt with sin and the arrogance and pride of covering that sin and thinking that it was all covered up. So when, maybe I just better speak for myself, not put it on you, but when I find myself bristling over some news item or some report of some dread tragedy that has been perpetrated by the hands of, of wicked people, and I hear myself in my head, saying something with regard to what, what kind of punishment for them is too good for them. I've learned, haven't learned it well, and I, it's, it's a recent thing I've learned. Uh, but in the last few years, I've learned to stop and, and say, okay, where is it in me that there's some undealt with sin that causes me to want to play God 
in this scenario and bring not just equal justice under the law down upon someone's head, but to really punish them uh, in extreme ways. Listen, maybe it's just men that have this struggle. I think I've mentioned once before uh, watching movies like uh, uh, Taken, which I think affects me more than than uh, it would a person maybe who doesn't have a, a daughter. But uh, Taken is about a man whose daughter is taken by by evil people, kidnapped. They don't know that they've kidnapped the daughter of a man who has a capacity to hunt them down and and kill them without his blood pressure even going up or his heart rate even speeding up. Uh, and it's, it's, there's a very satisfying moment in the early part of that movie, satisfying on an emotional level, when he says to one of the kidnappers over the phone, you don't know me, but I have certain talents, and I will find you, and when I find you, you will not live through it. Uh, that's extremely satisfying except for this one point. As I'm watching it, my heart rate is going up and my my angry energy is going up. It's almost like what you could call justice pornography. It's a, it's a stirring up of illicit emotions that don't that doesn't produce a righteous result, just like pornography does. And uh uh, in a culture where justice doesn't seem to happen very often, justice as it is defined by fallen man, the satisfaction of retribution against wrongdoing, that's how we define justice in our vernacular, and it's not a biblical definition. It's a human fallen definition. Uh, it's a necessary fallen definition, as I'll probably refer to more in a moment, uh, culture can't exist without there being the wielding of the sword, according to Romans chapter 13. I'm not a pacifist. I don't believe that there is no place for just retribution as exhibited by the sword of justice. Uh, and There's obvious scripture for that, and I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years who are godly people, more godly to me than I am and wiser than I am. And yet with all due respect to them, I, I, they've never been able to give me a satisfactory answer from their pacifist point of view. What is supposed to be done about the uh, out of control, wicked person who is destroying people right and left uh, whether it be a Nazi regime or a serial killer. Uh, yet at the same time, I do agree with their point of view from pacifist uh, thinking that the goal of our hearts should be the ultimate healing and restoration of the, the wicked person to repentance. Because that's, I don't know how you can claim to believe the gospel and not believe that that's true. 
And so that brings me to something I want to stir up in our thinking in the time we've got here. And I've told you all all along, especially the last couple of sessions, I'm not going to give you a lot of answers. Uh, I'm going to stir up a lot of questions. Uh, Not because I'm purposely trying to cause you problems, but it's just the nature of the subject matter. These are not subjects you can just have uh, uh, A, B, black, white, 2 plus 2 equal 4 simplistic responses to. Uh, like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It, it just doesn't work. Not if you want true justice. And I said retrib- re- retribution justice is the way we tend to think of justice is not biblical. And uh, it doesn't work. It, it may work if your goal is to slow down the, the progression of evil and keep it from taking over. But it doesn't work if your definition of justice is peace, blessing, restoration, forgiveness, healing, wholeness, shalom, which is the biblical definition of justice, as we have pointed out in previous times together on this subject. So I want to I want to look beginning today in Romans chapter eight, verse two, where. Paul talks about two kinds of law. He says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. There's two manifestations. You know, Paul uses the word law several different ways, and that really confuses us. It's pretty difficult to sort through if you understand uh, the Greek different different meanings and different shades. But when it all gets translated into English as law, and you, you really don't know which law Paul is referring to, you really can get confused. The law is, I mean, nobody likes the law. We don't, we don't love the law. We don't like anything to do with law. And yet, we do. I'm very grateful for the law of gravity, as long as it's keeping me on the ground safely. I'm not happy about it if I'm falling off a cliff. Uh, that, that kind of law is, is neither uh, my enemy or my friend. It just is what it is. So there's one kind of law that Paul refers to in places where he's obviously talking about the, the eternal principles of reality. That it doesn't matter what your political or, or religious point of view may be. Reality is not going to alter itself to accommodate your likes or dislikes. Um, and we can all think of various examples. We, you know what I'm saying. But then then there's the, there's the Torah, which is akin to the eternal law that I just referred to. It has elements in it that become uh, adjustable with the passing of time and the, 
the working of God in the earth so that we, we don't, we're, we're not so much concerned about certain aspects of Torah today, obviously, as, as Israel was under, the, uh, their dispensation. But, but Torah is, is not, uh, a, a legalistic. Torah is guidance. Torah is parental. Torah is an arm around us, giving us wisdom and teaching us how to live. David says, oh, how I love your Torah. It has been my guide. It has been my protection. It has been my mother and father. When my mother and father cast me away, the Lord picked me up, and it's your law that taught me how to live. Uh, Torah is, well, just look at a few things Torah is. Torah is absolutely irrevocably true. It's trustworthy. doesn't change. Torah is good and holy, Romans 7, 12 says. Torah is guidance. I've already made reference to that. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Rejoicing the heart. The testimony of the Lord is true, making wise the simple. Uh, the the guidance of the Lord, parents guiding their children. The law is Psalm one hundred nineteen verse one hundred forty two. One forty two says the law is truth, or a better word there would be reality. The law is ultimate reality, which is a direct reference to what I've already made reference to. That there's one aspect of law that is. Just irrefutable. You're not going to change it. All, all the, you know, your political posturing and voting, uh, to change things. You know, I mean, the most obvious example is trying to pass a law to make, uh, a marriage between two men or two women viable. It just, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what kind of law they pass. That's not a marriage. Uh, same thing with transgenderism. Uh, you can you can claim all day long you're a, other other than the gender that you were chromosomally given at birth. And I do need to mention here on the side, without chasing rabbits, that there are medical aberrations that we are discovering more and more that could give a better understanding of how a human being may suffer. Uh, gender confusion on the cellular level and that's, that needs a lot more wisdom and a lot more attention and a lot more grace and uh, patience and humility than we have been uh, able or willing to give in times past. That's too large a subject to get into here. But just to carte blanche pass a law that says uh, we're just going to disregard the reality of male and female and we're going to make you use the right uh, pronouns that will accommodate our changing of the law. Uh, uh, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 24 of Isaiah prophesied the day would come when men would seek to pass ordinances that just disregard reality. Uh, that's a form of insanity. Well, those are just all the good manifestations of the law, just a few of them. Uh, but the law can kill. 
There's another kind of law. Is it, and see, it gets a little complicated. Is it another kind of law? A totally different law? Is there a good law and a bad law? Or is there just the one single reality, as I just referred to, of like gravity? Gravity's good for me when I'm doing, you know, what it intends me to do, like stand on the ground and not jump off a cliff. Is it bad when I fall off the cliff? No, it's not bad. And so when you read in Romans chapter 7, uh, Paul says, oh, the law, the law made it possible for me to understand myself. I, I wouldn't know what coveting was if the law had not told me, don't covet. Uh, I, I was, I was not manifesting willful, rebellious guiltiness against the law until I heard the law tell me, don't covet. And then when it told me don't covet, sin awoke in me and I died. So it's not the law that kills in that circumstance. It's me being killed by the law, not because the law is wrong, but because I am wrong. Dallas Willard put it like this. This, I think, will really help, as so often is the case. Dallas Willard puts so, so many complicated things into succinct, easy-to-remember form. He says, the law is the course toward what is right, but it is not the source of what is right. The law sets me on the course towards what is right, but it is not the source of what is right. In other words, the law tells me what I need to do that will produce life, light, goodness, and truth, but the law cannot give me the power to produce that outcome. That takes the working of grace in me by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 19, when he was asked about, you know, how, how, can, I, how can I gain eternal life? He actually ultimately said, if you'll read it, he told him, keep the law. If you keep the law, you'll live. It is the law of life. Then later in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, he says to the people, do what the scribes and the Pharisees tell you what to do because they sit in Moses' seat and they tell you what's right, but do not do what they do because unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a kind of righteousness that keeps the law but cannot enter the kingdom. And then there's another kind of righteousness that exceeds the law of the scribes and Pharisees. And it satisfies the heart of God. 
in a way that the other law-keeping doesn't. So, see, there's lots of elements to this. Every one of the things I've just just introduced here for a few minutes uh, requires a lot of study. You know, Second uh, Corinthians chapter three, verse six, Paul says, "The letter of the law will kill." And in that context, it's just my opinion. I don't think Paul is referring there to the good law that will kill you when you disregard it. You know, if I disregard, forgive me for boring you with the same repetitive example, if I disregard electricity and grab a hot wire, the electricity is not frying me because it's angry at me and it's a bad law. Uh, I'm not even being fried because I've, I'm a bad person necessarily. It's just the law of electricity that's doing what it does and it's producing in me what it produces. The good law of God, the Torah of God, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, you shall not commit adultery. To disregard that law brings death. That's the the, the curse of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Those terrible This is what will happen to you if you disregard me. God is not saying that in a vengeful way. He's he's describing reality. This is the way it will unfold if you disregard what I've told you. But I think when Paul makes reference to the law, the letter of the law killing, I think... I may be wrong, but I think he's talking there about a slightly different manifestation. I think there he's talking about us using the letter of the law to destroy people. And that has a very uh, ominous cloud of darkness with it that is particularly seen in religious people. Nobody can be meaner, more exacting, and more cruel, and ultimately more destructive than legalistically religious people who kill others and think that they are doing God a service. And we have all seen it, and sometimes we've seen it in the mirror looking back at us, haven't we? That's the, that's the hard part. Now, what I want to, I'm, I'm just trying to lay the foundation for my main point, and that's this. What is this connection that we see between Satan, the law, death, punishment, and justice. <laughs> I told you this is complicated. I mean, any one of those words I just used could require hours of study. But I want to bring them together and just ask this question. Let me let me say it one more time. What is the connection between Satan, the law, legalism? 
justice, punishment, and death. Because God is the ultimate giver of life and the ultimate taker of life. I mean, nobody can take my life from me. God has to allow that. And so uh, God says in Ezekiel, uh, I wound and I heal, I kill and I make alive and there's no one who can deliver out of my hand. So I'm not suggesting by this that Satan has some kind of legal loophole he can use to trump God. I know people get into all kind of conversations about this and it's understandable because it's complicated. But, you know, we, we say, well, the enemy, the enemy took somebody's life prematurely. Well, that there's scripture for that. Jesus said in John 10, the, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you might have life. But when the thief kills and steals and destroys like he did with Job, he only could have done it with divine permission. I don't think anybody ever shows up dead and God says, oh, where'd you come from? How'd you get here? It wasn't your time yet. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you you got to think these things through and think how silly we are sometimes in the way we try to interpret mysteries. They're they're mysteries. Now, God may give permission. That doesn't mean He does it will willingly. Just like with Job, He wasn't He, he wasn't happy about what Job was going to go through, but it was necessary. I know. I just I told you I would open up worms cans of worms. I, I couldn't close. God did not enjoy what happened to Job, for heaven's sakes. But he he obviously knew it was a painful necessity. And uh, maybe we can explore that in days to come. But the point in all of this is God allows things that are not his will. And the one who seems to wield this kind of destruction and death and thievery and ruin of people's lives is obviously the devil. Well, we know that, don't we? I mean, yeah, the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But if you're not careful, you'll he to hear some Christians talk, you've got two gods. There's the God of life and the God of death. And sometimes the God of life wins and sometimes the God of death wins. And that's just obviously not true and so uh, they may not say they believe obviously in a God of life and a God of death but to, to hear them talk you have to almost conclude that that's ultimately what they believe about God now if you'll spend some time in John chapter 8 read the whole chapter uh, I'm not going to take time to do it here. I want, you do it on your own. Take John chapter 8. Some of you may have a translation, by the way, of John 8 that does not include the opening story of the woman taken in adultery who the men wanted to stone and who Jesus rescued 
by asking the men, you who, any of you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. If you have a translation that doesn't include that, it probably has a footnote that tells you, well, it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. And that's true. That story was not in the earliest manuscripts. That doesn't make the story false. It just means it wasn't included until a little later when John began to be copied for later uh, generations. Uh, I think the fact that it was included later makes it more viable and more true, and I won't explain that right now because I'm running out of time and I hadn't gotten to my point yet. Uh, But the woman taken in adultery is the opening story of John chapter 8. It's very interesting. I've never noticed this till recently. John 8 begins with them wanting to stone her to death. Jesus steps in and saves her without dishonoring the law of Moses, by the way, because he didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it, fill it full, to fill its meaning with, to fill it full of meaning. Not just a shallow meaning, a legalistic meaning. See, they want to, they were going to kill her with the letter of the law. The letter kills. But John chapter 8 closes, the very last words of John 8 is that they were looking for stones to kill Jesus. That's just an interesting thing. Well, in between the stones they wanted to kill the woman with and the stones they wanted to kill Jesus with is a long conversation between the uh, the, the legalists and, and Jesus. And it's, I mean, the whole chapter <clears throat> requires a lot of deep prayerful contemplation, which I'm hoping you will do without my help. But one of the things I want to draw your attention to in in this uh, moment together is that Jesus makes a statement about murder and about death. And he's doing it in a context of legalistic religious people. And in Israel, of course, legalism and religion went hand in hand because of the structure of their moral code and the way they functioned as a society. We, we've got our own versions of it, whether it's secular court or religious court, uh, and that's too big a subject. I, everything's too big a subject to unpack. But I, I, I hope you get the flavor of what I'm driving at here. There is a there is a spirit of murder that wears a clerical collar, so to speak. There is a religious killing of people. Uh, it 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 hijacks the good and right and holy law, twists it for purposes of unholiness and cruelty in the name of God. 
and does more evil in that than it would be without any religious aspect at all. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anything we don't all know, really. I mean, you know, one of the complaints of the atheist is that there's been more murder done in the name of religion than in any other force. Well, that's not exactly true unless you're honest enough to admit that secularism and communism and more particularly Marxist communism, Marxist-Leninist communism, Mao Zedong communism, uh, and uh, has killed more people. And it's atheist. It's killed more people, arguably, than any other movement. Hitler was not a Christian, for heaven's sakes. He was not a spiritual being uh, in the sense that he had some kind of twisted idea of God. Uh, he, he was a worshiper of the Catholic spirits of Germanic occultism. Uh, so he wasn't necessarily an atheist, but uh, doctrinally, he you can't you can, there's not a dime's worth of difference between the far right of Hitler and the far left of of Marx uh, and Lenin. Uh, they are they are basically the same thing. Hitler was a socialist. Anybody get that Nazi national socialism? Uh, so uh, the idea that uh, Hitler was from the far right and communism was the far left is just uh, ignorance. But the point is, yeah, Hitler fought the communists. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know that's got nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Ultimately, they end up in the same place, murdering people without God being involved. But yes, religion does kill people. The first religious murder. The first murder was a religious murder. The first murder of a brother by a brother was Cain killing Abel, and it was done over worship, among other things. And so the, the killing of people in the name of religion was a precedent set early on in the human experience. Now, I want to try to just bring all this together in our thinking in a way that we and we'll have to pick it up more more completely in Lord willing in the next session we have together but uh, Jesus says of the devil they said we're we're not we're not born of fornication I've always thought when they said that they were saying yeah we've heard about you we, your your birth is questionable uh, you know that that mother of yours you weren't married when you were conceived I think that was all mixed in here when they said we we weren't born of fornication like some people here we know. Uh, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, no, if, if Abraham were your father, you would listen to me. You're not of Abraham. You are of your father, the devil. And the works of your father, you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. That Greek word there is actually the word for manslayer. He was a manslayer from the beginning. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own. Or when you speak a lie, you speak of your own. Because he was a liar and the father of lies. And you're, you're of him. What does it mean that Jesus says Satan the devil 
was a murderer from the beginning. Well, I want to I, I want to try to just pull this together for us, and I hope it will leave us all. If nothing else, I pray this will leave us all much more careful with our mouth and with our emotions and with our thinking about justice and injustice and judging people and wanting people to come under uh, the, the lash of the law. And that's this. The word devil, Satan, Satan is adversary, the one who is against you. Devil, Diabolos, the one who is seeking to slander you in order to bring an accusation. Now, what is his goal in slandering and being your adversary? It is to bring you to death. He is the murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning. Obviously, that doesn't mean he was created as a murderer. So when did he become a murderer? Uh, I believe it was the moment Adam breathed his first breath. Now, this is my opinion. I think it is valid. You may differ on it. But uh, he hated the creation of man. He has always hated man. And that's why you find him in the beginning coming to overthrow man and, uh, and destroy him. He's a murderer. And what did he seek to use to kill man with? Lying. He lied to him in the hopes of using the good law of God to bring Adam under condemnation and destruction. The good law, the law of the spirit of life, uh, becomes the law of death when we choose to disregard the truth. And so the wages of sin is death. If you eat this fruit, you will surely die. Uh, and so in Hebrews chapter 2, you have that wonderful passage there where Jesus took upon himself the form of a human being. He became man in order that he might be able to die for by dying he would destroy him who had the power of death and deliver all those who through all their lifetime have been subject to the bondage of the fear of death. That word there, uh, it says Satan had the power of death, destroy him who had the power of death. Don't misunderstand that to mean he had the power of death, he took it away from God, and he, he held the power of death until Jesus could come and uh, snatch the keys to death, hell, and the grave away from him. That I've heard sermons uh, that paint pr- pretty vivid, imaginative pictures of all of that. Let's get one thing, I don't know, let's get one thing super, super straight. 
God is never at the mercy of any creature wondering what he's going to do about uh, what that creature has done. God is never scratching his head. God is never holding his hat in his hand. God is never saying, what are we going to do now? And so uh, the word there in, in Hebrews chapter 2, the, the power of death, is actually the, you could translate it, uh, Jesus took from him the effectiveness of death. He, he destroyed, he made him, he made him of, of no consequence. You could translate it that way. He, he made the devil of no consequence. The devil really has no longer any issue. Was he of any consequence before Calvary? Well, yeah. And so at Calvary, Jesus destroyed principalities and powers. The word destroy there doesn't mean he, he made them cease to exist. He caused them to, to lose their ability to wield uh, dominant ultimate control over the uh, futures of men. Uh, that's just another can of worms I'm opening that I can't close. But uh, he struck the devil of no, he made him of no consequence ultimately and, and um, took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. That's the idea there. We could spend the whole time together just on that. But here's here's my point. Why uh, then does the devil still wield what seems to be uh, the, the power to destroy people? It has to do with whether the people believe the lies or not. It has to do with the, the lying. Now, we've only got a few minutes left, and I'm, I'm just getting to my main point that I wanted to get us to. When, when we slander, when we think judiciously, and I, when I use the word judicious, judicious can be a good thing. And to, to think judiciously means to think with good, clear judgment and right wisdom. But if, uh, maybe a, a better word I should use would be uh, litigious. When we think legalistically, we're litigious. We want to litigate. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, how can you Corinthians who know the Lord, who are going to one day sit in judgment over angels, take each other to law court and argue your case before a, a legal court system? How can you do that? Paul was just amazed that they would do such a thing. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, uh, when you're walking through life together and you end up in a conflict with somebody, agree with your adversary quickly. Obviously, the word adversary there doesn't mean the devil. It's the same word. Agree agree with your diabolos. Here it means whoever's mad at you, whoever's upset at you. What Jesus is saying is your first reaction should never be well, you're going to give me trouble. I'm going to give you trouble. You're going to mess with me. I'm going to mess with you. You're going to fight me. I'm going to fight you, by golly. And you you will end up, Jesus says, you will end up being taken to the magistrate, and the magistrate will take you to the judge, and the judge will 
uh, fine in favor of your enemy and you will end up in prison and you won't get out of the prison till you've paid the last farthing. I don't think Jesus is saying no matter what the situation is, you're going to lose and you're going to end up going to jail. He's saying no matter what you do, if this is your attitude, you will end up in a court of uh, of torment. Because he's the reason I say that is because in Matthew 18, when he tells the story of the man who would not forgive the debt, remember the man who had the large debt and he and he, it was forgiven him, but then he went and found a guy who only owed him 25 bucks and he 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 grabbed him by the throat and said, "Pay me what you owe me." And the guy said, "Please have mercy and I'll I'll pay you." And the guy wouldn't have mercy, but he threw him in the court or took him you know took him to the law court, had him locked up. And and Jesus says that the 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 master who forgave him, who in this picture is obviously the Lord, the master who forgave him went and got him and and said, "You wicked servant, uh, I forgave you the whole debt, but you wouldn't forgive your brother." And Jesus says, "You will be cast into the prison, and you will be delivered into the hands of the tormentors." The word tormentor there is the Greek word for for bill collector. And you'll be there till you pay everything. You'll you'll be in there till you pay the last penny. So the guy who wins the lawsuit is still in Jesus' eyes, who are the only eyes that matter, in prison and in the hands of the tormentors. Because uh, that that worm that never dies and that fire that's not quenched in the guts of selfish, angry, bitter people who are always, it doesn't matter what they get, they still want more. Uh, I had someone say to me a few years ago, a man who had been, uh, 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 he's a godly man, a man I really respect and love. But he escaped from uh, the third world and came to America, and uh, we were in a conversation with several people one night, and uh, I made some statement about wanting to have vengeance, wanting to, you know, get my hands on so-and-so. And it's the kind of thing you say in conversation with men. Men tend to do it. That's really, uh, it's, it's, it's in the eyes of each other, we don't think much of it, but in, in this man's eyes, who had been through the worst of the third world, he reached over and touched my hand and he said, no, no, Clay, you would not want revenge, and if you got it, it would never satisfy you at all. And I could see in his eyes, he was speaking to me from his own experience. I don't know the story. I don't know the background. And I wasn't, I wasn't saying, I was saying what I was saying in, in kind of a conversational chit chat way. But he called me short on it. And I'm glad he did because Jesus said, watch over your mouth. Watch over what comes out of your mouth because what comes out of your mouth is coming out of your heart. And if you're just saying it conversationally, and then later you say, well, I didn't really mean it. You did mean it, or it wouldn't have come out of your mouth. You'll give account in the day of judgment for every idle 
meaningless words you say. So there are no meaningless words. And so, uh, in closing, let me just mention uh, some characters from literature that help illustrate this. Shylock in The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare. And Inspector Javert from Victor Hugo's magnificent novel, Les Miserables. Shylock represents the human caught in the web of legalism, thinking he's doing justice in a court of law, when uh, it, it, it ends up being manifestly evident that he, what he's trying to achieve cannot be just. Uh, now, let me just add an aside here. One of the things that bothers me about the character of Shylock is is uh, he is he is the Jew. Whether whether Shakespeare meant to do this or not, Shylock has become a tool in the hands of anti-Semitic, Jew-hating people. And that uh, that comes across, sadly, in the play. Um, but that being a, uh, a true, still Shylock gives us the picture of what we're dealing with here. Shylock takes uh, a man to court who he says owes him a certain amount and the man can't pay. And Shylock demands that payment be given him by cutting off a pound of the man's flesh. This is where we get our term, a pound of flesh. Well, he got his pound of flesh. Uh, uh, One of the heroines of the story steps up and points out, okay, if you take his pound of flesh, it better not be more than a pound or then you will be owing him what you cannot pay him. If he bleeds, then then you're going to end up owing him. See, there's no way to ever get equal justice under the law. Shylock says, actually, I crave the law. I crave the law. I demand the law be satisfied in my situation. Well, there's no way for the law to be satisfied. He was going to cut skin off a man who's begging for mercy. He's going to cut his skin off. But there's no way to do it without Shylock ending up taking more than he was owed. You can't cut somebody's skin off and and not bleed. And so uh, I think it was Portia who says, you you make his blood pour and then you're going to owe him. And in the way the story ends up turning around, Shylock ends up begging for mercy, which is very, very power, powerful picture. The other picture, an Inspector Javert, is a picture of a man who is so devoid of understanding of the of the character of God. He thinks law and God are the same thing. He thinks the law and the stringency of the law is the heart of God. Now, never mind that the law 
when it's good and right and true, is a manifestation, obviously, of the character of God in that God intended law of love and right and truth and justice and goodness to be uh, unimpeded by its opposite. Uh, all Javert knows is that the law is uh, right and Jean Valjean who is imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread uh, because his sister and nephew were starving. And Javert says, yeah, you'll starve again until you learn the meaning of the law. Javert is a picture of the legalist, but he's also a picture of Satan. Uh, Javert is a picture of, of the murderer who is a liar who wants you dead and yet is doing it with a clerical collar on. He's doing it in the name of law. And when this spirit gets turned loose in the earth, whether it's in the law courts or in church or in uh, human relationships, uh, it it will never bring so-called equal justice. It cannot. It is impossible. So therefore, if that's true, what what hope is there ever of achieving real justice? Well, that's too big a question to answer in the few minutes we've got left. But I'll just say this. Justice is restorative, redemptive mercy. Or it's nothing. If you end up with justice that is in opposition to mercy, you are not manifesting justice. And you will never see justice. You will only see retribution, revenge, and ongoing destruction. The cross is the place where justice and mercy become one. Father, I pray for everybody who's listening right now, and I pray for myself, that the Holy Spirit will teach us what we need to understand. We... We chew on this and chew on this and it seems to get bigger the more we chew it. But Lord, at some point we can digest it and it will become true. Because you said in your word that you would write your laws upon our hearts so that we will do them. And when we are living the law, there need not ever be any battle in us between justice and injustice. We will not expect justice from others, but we will give justice. And justice is no longer retribution, but loving kindness, tender mercy, and that which produces life. Help us, Father. Teach us what we cannot ever know just by studying it. Let it become your living word in us. 
for our sakes, for the sake of our families, for the sake of the world we live in. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfect justice and mercy, the living Torah, in his name. Amen.